Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back to Coming Clean with your host, Benji Backer. I am in person and really grateful to be with an iced tea friend of mine and uh, a new friend of mine, uh, Rich, and he's at BlackRock. He's had a leadership role at BlackRock for many years. I'll actually let you introduce yourself because I think your title uh, as head of portfolio uh, management group and senior managing director for BlackRock doesn't do it justice. So I'll let you go over that. And then I want to get into ESG, everything about your strategy, and, and go from there. But but welcome to the show, and, and thanks for making the time. Well, it's great to be here, Benji, and it's uh, great to spend a little time. Yeah, so uh, I run the portfolio management group at BlackRock. I've been at the firm for 32 years this month, actually. Um, but uh, what that means is I, uh, I oversee the investors at BlackRock. So as I tell people, it's been a long time since they let me buy a stock or a bond. Uh, <laughs> but I manage, uh, I manage the investors and the investment processes. And so I've had a, you know, a lot to do with uh, how, we, uh, how we develop our thinking around, uh, around the markets as well as around things like uh, sustainability in the energy industry. Well, and you guys have such an incredible scale uh, of impact. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because you oversee a lot of that, and it, it, makes, it makes the world a better place in a lot of ways, but it also has the scale that I think people, a lot of listeners might not realize. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think it's important to understand who we are and what we do. Um, and a lot of people don't understand what it is to be an investment manager. Right? We're not a bank. We're not an insurance company. Um, so BlackRock manages about $9 trillion, give or take. Uh, none of that money is our own. Right? It belongs to individuals or pension funds or other institutions. In fact, uh, well over half of the money that we manage is being managed for someone's retirement. Uh, a teacher, a lawyer, a firefighter uh, who's saving for their retirement. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to produce the best returns we can for them. You know, I joined this firm uh, shortly after it was founded. Uh, we started with eight people and zero dollars under management. Wow. Today we have about 20,000 people around the world. And as I said, nine trillion. Um, and we've been able to grow it because we've We've delivered for our clients. We've created the investment returns that have allowed them to have a, a dignified retirement or achieve their financial goals and, uh, you know, at a fair price. And that's what we keep on doing. Well, one of the ways that you've tried to, you know, serve your clients is, is also thinking about what impact those investment dollars have on the world. And so you've really made a big priority to invest in ESG, which, you know, is environmental and social governance. It's something that has been a big priority. Can you, as someone who has been here since pretty much the beginning, can you talk through what that process looked like and what kind of the general strategy is for BlackRock as it's approaching this today, but also kind of how it started and how you've seen it evolve? Yeah, sure. Look, the a couple things. One, ESG has become a little bit of a bad word. I don't know how that happened, um, but it's really about taking into account a variety of different factors uh, as they affect the investment world. Um, you know, what you've seen, as I think you've seen a a kind of evolution of what sustainability is and what sustainable investing is. But I think the most important thing that we focus on is choice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not our money. Um, so the investor chooses. They choose their objective. They choose their time frame. They choose their constraints. 
Sometimes we have investors who don't want to have us invest in alcohol or in tobacco or firearms or sometimes in energy. Mm -hmm. um, that's their choice. Within the choice that they make, everything we do is about performance. Uh, our job is to drive investment performance. And so given the, the objectives and the constraints that our clients choose, um, my team's job is to produce the best investment results they can. Uh, and as I tell people, I've got about 2,000 people who work for me who manage the portfolios of BlackRock. Not one of us gets paid based upon the temperature of the earth. Mm. Uh, we get paid based upon the investment results we generate. And the last part is that we do it on research. Uh, it's not based upon uh, a political view. It's not based upon uh, the way the world, Larry Fink or Rich Cashel or anyone else wants the world to be. Uh, it's based upon research that we think is going to, uh, going to affect asset valuations and asset prices. And so, yeah, we have clients who choose to invest with a specific sustainable goal. Uh, and we are, you know, happy as heck to manage those portfolios for them. Uh, the vast, vast majority of people uh, just want us to produce investment results. But that doesn't mean you put your head in the sand and don't take into account important governance factors, uh, material uh, factors around the environment, or, or even around social issues that are going to affect asset prices. They're going to affect the valuation of a company. And so, you know, it, it, it's strange to me that investing has become so politicized. Mm -hmm. As I said, I've been doing this at BlackRock for 32 years, and I've been in the industry for 35. Never really kind of anticipated that. Uh, but that's a bit of the world we live in. Well, and I think that you're actually alluding to something that we've struggled with, too, which is that environmental issues themselves have become so polarized and politicized. You deal with backlash from both sides all the time. And, you know, the people on the far left, if you can call it that, are, are saying that you shouldn't invest in fossil fuels. People on the far right say that you have some agenda to change over energy. On the flip side, who are very pro-fossil fuels, forget about the politicization of it for a second. Can you just talk about what you're seeing from the economic and investment case of investing in sustainable solutions, the trend that you're seeing, the reason why this is so important, regardless of the political noise? Sure. Look, um, there is an energy transitioning happening. Whether you think that's good news or bad news, that's up to you. Um, it, it, it's happening. Uh, and so that we know that the world requires a lot more capital for energy uh, than it has. Bloomberg put out a piece, I think, last year that said, uh, that anticipated we were going to need 4 to $7 trillion of annual investment a year uh, for energy. And that compares to about 2.4. So a significant uptick uh, in the level of, of investment in energy. Renewable, traditional, everything. And so that tells you that energy as a whole is going to take a growing slice uh, of the investment pie. And you better be prepared to, to take advantage of that. So, you know, when I think about it, um, we do believe that an orderly transition is going to be good for the economy and it's going to create a significant investment opportunity. Said differently, a disorderly transition will, will do the opposite. And so I don't think an energy transition can happen without an all-of-the-above approach uh, that prioritizes energy security, 
It prioritizes uh, reliable access to affordable energy, uh, and it also prioritizes lower carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. And some people, again, uh, don't like that. Some people do. Um, that we're going to need these things. And I think traditional energy companies are going to play a huge role uh, in that transition. Um, we know that uh, big swaths of the world need to decarbonize, really moving from coal to natural gas. Um, we know uh, and we saw that, you know, post the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, the importance of energy security and the, real, the, the reality is, is that you know, the reliability, particularly here in the U.S., provided by traditional oil and gas is going to be critical. Yeah. So, so I think you know, my team's job is to invest for returns, mm -hmm. um, not to uh, try to orchestrate some, uh, some view of the world. Uh, and uh, while lots of people kind of think that that's what we do, we're trying to, you know, have some uh, normative view of the way we want the world to be. Uh, no, that's not what we do. Uh, we try to make money for our clients. Uh, and I think energy investing is going to be a really important part of that. Well, and you, let's dive into that a little bit further because, I mean, as, as I mentioned, you've received backlash from both sides, but obviously very front facing. You've been in the news as a company with states like Texas and Florida uh, who have really spoken out against BlackRock investing in their states with this sort of mindset. What do you say to the people, including maybe the governors and the politicians of those states who criticize BlackRock's relationship with energy? You've alluded to a little bit, but what do you say to them who, who are critical, but they also think that, uh, that you have this evil agenda what misconceptions do they have that you have to fight back against? What do you say to them? What does that conversation look like? You know, Benji, it's kind of funny. We, we've been accused of, uh, and we've put on lists for, quote, boycotting uh, oil and gas. Um, and again, uh, this may be good news. This may be bad news. We are the world's largest investor in oil and gas. We have over $310 billion invested in traditional energy. Uh, and by the way, that's up over the last three years from about 260-something billion. Um, and so uh, it's a significant uptick uh, from where we were. Um, and that's because we see it as an investment opportunity. So the notion on its face <laughs> that we're boycotting uh, oil and gas is kind of absurd. And by the way, uh, we also are a significant player in the infrastructure around it uh, and in the smaller providers, uh, in E&P companies, in midstream, uh, all different parts of the ecosystem. That said, we're not a bank. We're not financing right. you know, uh, individual little businesses. Uh, but we are investing with the sole goal of producing the best returns that we can for our clients. So the notion that we're, we're an energy boycotter is a little tough for me to swallow. You know, all that said, look, um, I think it's important to, to understand um, that some of this anti-ESG legislation, as it's called, and we see this in a lot of forms, um, you know, we have to have a better dialogue around this. Uh, there has to be a better, richer dialogue than some, oh, you're on a list or you're not on a list. And I think people are starting to understand, and we've seen this, um, that the, uh, the problems and potential costs that come out of these, uh, these bills, and, and those costs and those problems are being borne by you know, the pension plans, the retirees in the state. And so we're spending a lot of time in all of these states having conversations with the policymakers, 
um, having conversations with our clients and working hard to to hopefully make certain that you know they understand the implications of of these policies. But I think there is a growing body of evidence that's emerged and research um, that shows that these boycott lists and these other efforts to restrict uh, investment access, what they do is they curtail competition uh, and in ways that will, you know, increase costs and lower returns. And it's open competition that produces the best product at the lowest price. And, you know, I'm very proud of the job that we have done for our clients in Texas, for our clients in Oklahoma, for our clients early all around the world. And uh, we were talking the other day, you know, this is, these are real things. And you've seen a number of different, uh, you know, pension fund leaders around the world, including in some of the, the reddest red states you can imagine, come out and say, you know, if you do this, it's going to cost hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars or said differently, it's going to cost 10, 20, 30, 40 basis points of return. You know, 25 basis points of return doesn't sound like a lot, a quarter of a percent. When it's applied to a huge pension fund, it's the difference between that retired teacher getting a COLA increase this year mm. or not. Mm. Right? Think about that. Mm. You know, I, 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 uh, I ran into my fourth grade teacher uh, a couple weeks ago. I would not be the one who has to tell her, who's a great lady, but, you know, very much retired, uh, you know, that she's not getting a COLA increase this work because th th this year because some uh, politician decided to, you know, target uh, an asset manager or a bank or some other company. So where does this attack stem from? Like, I guess, obviously, there's two parts of that question. Where does it stem from in terms of why is it happening? But what's their justification for it, for those who don't know? Like, what, what are they telling you or what are they telling the public for those who haven't been following it very closely? Why would they oppose this so adamantly? And, and, and what do you do to combat that? Well, look, I, I mean, we combat it with facts. But l let's talk about some legitimate concerns right. that, that I think are out there. And I, I think you have, to, you have to recognize this. Um, you know, one of the models around sustainable investing, which has been very popular, mostly in Europe, has, it, it, it's about what you don't do. That's what I call it. It's about what you don't do. Um, you don't invest in fossil fuels. You don't invest in, t in defense companies. You don't invest in alcohol. You, it's all about what you don't do. And frankly, I, I, I do think that that ultimately restricts the investment universe and restricts the opportunity to create returns for clients. Mm -hmm. And so I think that sustainable investing kind of gets tarnished with that approach. And by the way, some of our clients feel very passionately that that, that kind of approach aligns with their values. And you know what? If it's your money, you can choose your values, but those aren't BlackRock's values. Right. All right. And so I, I do think that sustainable investing has to transition. It has to transition to being about what you do do, right? You do invest in innovative new technologies. You do invest in life-saving biosciences. You do invest in, uh, in, in things that are going to promote uh, a, uh, a better economic growth for people. And that's important. And so I think part of the backlash has been targeted at this, oh, what don't you do? 
but they forget and they target that at BlackRock or even at other managers who are acting on behalf of their clients. Mm. You know, one of my very first clients at BlackRock was a very large religious denomination uh, in the United States, happened to be headquartered in Texas, great folks. And they were very clear that they did not want their portfolio to have exposure to alcohol mm. or, or, and, or tobacco. And I think this is back in 1992. Mm. And I recall that was the first time I had ever dealt with that. That's aligning with their values. That's not an investment decision. You know, our job is to create the best possible returns given the client's chosen uh, closure chosen objectives. And so, you know, I think for us, it's about making certain people understand that. I do think that there is a legitimate concern that we're hearing from clients and, and companies that we invest in in the energy industries that uh, the availability of bank financing uh, and sometimes even insurance for small companies, small businesses, not the Exxon's, Conoco's, Philips, Valero's, all these great companies, but just, you know, the, the, the mom and pop small businesses are having a tougher time finding financing. They blame that, and I don't know whether it's true or it's not, on the concerns at the banks about their own mm. sustainability profiles. I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, I just think that the kind of way that it's been being addressed is, is misplaced. And on that topic of energy and the diversity that you have to deal with in from a day-to-day basis that you, you really are, are focused on the return aspect, but you also are seeing a landscape shift from a very fossil fuel-heavy infrastructure to a very diverse infrastructure. You're seeing states diversify their energy grids very quickly, and you're seeing our country and other countries diverse very quickly. When you see the intermittency and unreliability of uh, and, and scale concerns that people have with solar and wind, how does that like impact the strategy, if at all, or is it focused on finding technological developments to ease those concerns? What are you seeing from investors around solar and wind versus nuclear and natural gas and coal that are a little bit more stable 24 hours a day, but a little bit more traditional energy sources? Can you just kind of give a broader review of what that shift looks like? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I think it's a great question. And one of the things uh, that we're seeing is massive technical, technological innovation in the renewable space. Uh, you're seeing it in greater efficiency and how it plays out, uh, you know, larger wind blades or, or better uh, solar PV capture. Um, all those things are really important. Um, but the reason why I say it's you need all of the above. Uh, I have a son who lives in Texas. He's lived in Texas for many years now. And uh, one thing I've come to learn about Texas is that uh, it's really hot in the summer. And on those hot summer afternoons, the wind doesn't blow very hard. And if you've ever been out there, you know that. Um, well, that's a problem if you're relying, if you were going to rely on wind for your, your, your uh, power generation at that point. And so it's important that we have an all-of-the-above approach, or it's important that we have technological innovation like battery storage. Right. Um, you know, BlackRock's been a big investor in battery storage. The technology there is really evolving incredibly rapidly. And so, you know, even a state like Texas is like the number one state in wind generation in the country. I think it's number two in solar. Uh, which is which is tremendous, 
But guess what? You know, there are times when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow and you need natural gas primarily to cover that baseload capacity. And so I think from an investment perspective, um, we love the emerging technologies. We love the opportunity in renewable. Right? Renewable growth has been about 15% a year uh, for the last several years compared to 1% for traditional energy sources. That tells you something. Right, it, it tells you a, 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 about... Uh, uh, about technical technological innovation, it tells you about affordability, it tells you about uh, direction. Uh, at the same time, I don't think that means that these other sources go away and the folks who want them to go away or want them to go away really quickly, I, I, I think are not thinking about what the implications of that are for reliability and also affordability. And, and some of those things are frankly very regressive. Well, I, I, I'm struck by this approach because this is not what we hear from – I mean what, what you're saying to me is, is incredibly pragmatic. It's also what I'm hearing from the scientific community. It's what I'm hearing from the sensible members of Congress who are working on this. It's what I'm hearing from largely the business community. But it's not what we're hearing in the narrative. It's, it's, and even about BlackRock, it's not what we're hearing about BlackRock. I guess this isn't even something that I, I, I plan on talking about, but how do you, like, from the narrative standpoint, is it, how frustrating is it to be combating this kind of, this noise that doesn't accurately descript what's going on in the marketplace, nor what, what BlackRock's doing? Is there a way around that? Do you see that that is kind of a big hindrance in the ability to just do business every day? Look, I, um, uh, you know, as an investment manager, again, we started. I started this company. It was very small. Uh, we never thought people would care that much about what we say, uh, and uh, it's important that we get the message out. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, I never thought I'd be spending as much time as I do um, in Washington D.C. or in Austin or in lots of other state capitals around the world talking to policymakers either at the state or federal level about this. I will say this, um, one thing that I've been struck with uh, over the last, uh, you know, really two years since we've really started to focus on this much more is you get a good hearing. I mean, people are willing to engage and have a debate. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for that. Uh, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say it wasn't frustrating when people say, oh, BlackRock is trying to do this or BlackRock's trying to do that. And some of the stuff is a little comical, frankly. Um, but, you know, the most important thing is that we don't want to get in the way of our ability to serve our clients yep. and, and generate returns for our clients. And, you know, I used to be of the belief there was no such thing as good publicity. Let's just stay out of the papers. Um, the reality is, is it $9 trillion dollars? the ability to keep your head below the parapet, well, that ship sailed a long time ago. Uh, and so I think we are spending more time on trying to help people understand what it is we do, what's our approach. And by the way, not everyone likes it, but at right. least they know there's facts. Right. You, you may not like the facts, uh, but they're the facts. And that's what uh, what our goal has been. Well, and from a personal interjection, I mean, I as a somebody who got into this from a fiscal conservative mindset, I do get really frustrated when I see politicians from what I traditionally would consider my own side going after companies like BlackRock without even trying to understand what the company's doing or are 
very adamantly opposing what BlackRock's doing, even though they know what they're doing is very aligned, actually, with conservative principles. I think a lot of it's political pandering, uh, and it's a, it's very frustrating. It's also not conservative, oftentimes, the at least the principles that are being espoused, and that's just my own personal opinion. But I, but I, I, I think that where it comes down to is that we've oversimplified so many things in the news media and in politics that it's really easy to make it an us versus them thing. There, you've even addressed that there are valid concerns that people have about the transition that's happening. Does that mean that it's black and white, black rocks evil, or black rocks the best thing in the entire world? No, but it's really easy to make it that way in this very 30-second soundbite media world we live in. And I can imagine that you're tempering some of that frustration because you have to, but I would be incredibly frustrated if I was you. And I, and I can't imagine that frustration, especially as you're trying to deal with it from both both sides. Well, I, like Benji, I appreciate that. I appreciate your listeners, too. Uh, because if you're listening to this and you've made it this far, you're not doing the 140 character type uh, type sound bites. And, and I do think that um, you know, as we kind of help people understand what we do, and frankly, as we learn uh, through this process, um, you know, there's a much richer dialogue developing. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm hopeful. You know, you got to be an optimist in this thing. But in terms of you know what are traditionally conservative principles. You know, look, we built this company from literally zero to have a $100 billion market cap. Uh, there is no bigger believer in free markets than BlackRock. Uh, and uh, that's what we rely on every day to be able to do what we do. Um, and ultimately, the markets will determine what's the right way to produce energy. All right. And that's going to react to uh, technological changes, to investor preferences, and to policy. Right. We can't ignore policy in this. Uh, but, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, the market will uh, will tell us what's the right way. And when the government, state or federal, decides winners and losers in different industries, that is far, far worse than when the market decides for themselves. And history has proven that over and over again. So to get back to BlackRock's strategy for a second, my, my girlfriend works in ESG. A lot of my friends work in ESG. A lot of the questions that I hear about are the tracking. And, and how do you track – so you've got – you obviously can track returns and financial returns from investments. But in terms of the impact of those investments from the environmental specific side, but you can talk about the, the SG, the social governance as well. Is there a tracking mechanism that you use to, to see what environmental impacts these investments are having? Is there one that you want to see that you haven't that, – that the marketplace hasn't been able to design yet? What does tracking the impact look like outside of the dollars and cents? Yeah, look, I'd say a couple things. One, again, we have clients uh, who choose to have specific, sustainable-oriented objectives, right? Uh, And so there, if your objective is to to invest in renewables, right, you want to track how much energy you've been able to produce uh, and what the delta... Uh, for carbon is, right? And to the extent that you've produced that, and by the way, you accurately measure that, because you can't just talk about, uh, you know, that a, uh, a wind farm or a solar farm produces no carbon, because you had to create those, those materials. Right. But when you compare them accurately, I think that's a valid measure. You can, you can do that in lots of different things. 
But I do, I, I think most people are not concerned specifically with sustainable objectives. They're concerned with their, their broader portfolios. If you're uh, the big teacher's retirement system in a different state, um, right, you're concerned about being able to pay for teacher's retirement. And, you know, there, um, yeah, we take into account uh, factors. Uh, we take into account environmental factors. Uh, we take into account changing consumer preferences, right? It would be crazy not to. Uh, how could you do that if you're building a building or investing in a building uh, in a place uh, where, where uh, climate change is affecting uh, the weather or sea level or extreme weather events? And by the way, fine. Uh, let's concede that I don't know what the cause of those extreme weather events is, but if there are many more extreme weather events in a particular area than we saw before, how can you not take that into account if you're investing in a company that's going to be insuring those properties mm -hmm. or, or located? And so I, I, I think there's some narrative that, oh my God, ESG is not financially relevant and you shouldn't take it into account. I got to be honest, that's, that's a bit of a head in the sand approach. And, you know, the ostrich approach is not a great way to invest. Right. And, and so what we try to do is look for financial materiality. All right. And uh, that's the key. What's financially material to the returns of the company? And there are a lot of things. I mean, you know, we, we've seen recently, you know, great examples of governance failures. Right. Like that's a problem. Um, we've seen companies have to pay huge sums of money for discrimination lawsuits, right? That's financially material. Um, and uh, we also see changing policy and changing a changing regulatory environment. And again, you may like the changing regulatory environment, you may not like the changing regulatory environment, but it affects asset prices. And so, you know, our job is to try to understand one of these things. I will say this, the notion that you can roll up all ESG things into a single score is not really financially useful mm -hmm. and not something that our investors would pay particular attention to. So from, a, from the tracking perspective, okay, maybe there's not, it's not possible to do a single score. We also know that, I mean, outside of BlackRock, the ESG world is very large and Everyone's kind of using different metrics. Do you think of, of tracking the progress? Do you think that there is a way to have different, similar metrics that are used? Is that some, and if so, is that something that the government needs to set? Is it something that private companies need to keep? I mean, I know private companies have already tried and private nonprofits and, and NGOs have tried. Do you think that the metrics do need to be set in a fairly uniform way, even if they are even if there are multiple of them and they're ever changing, do you see the landscape of that changing or do you think each company just kind of needs to report those metrics on its own? Look, I, I um, it's funny. I uh, was working from home uh, a, a while ago when we were all stuck at home and my wife yelled at me that I had to clean up my home office because it was kind of a mess. <laughs> um, and I was going through some old files and I pulled out a file from 2014 of kind of some early work that we had done on sustainability with some things around our analytics. And I started flipping through it. And I actually brought it to our daily investor meeting to kind of show people that 
oh my God, here we were seven years later at the time or whatever it was, eight years later. And what a massive change. So what we thought was state-of-the-art analytics in 2014, and I compared it to you know, when you go into your drawer and you find your old iPhone 3, uh, and you pull it out, and if you can find that funny wide charger that you need for yeah. it and plug it in and charge it up, do that and compare it to your device today, right? And so what we thought was really cool and really sophisticated at the time is completely outdated, completely. And so this is changing very fast, uh, and it's evolving, and our analytic frameworks and our ability to understand financial materiality gets better every day. Uh, and that's what we've been focused on. So, yeah, I think, you know, at BlackRock, we've been spending a lot of time on that to try to understand what's the financial materiality of variety, different kind of sustainable-oriented measures, just like we do for central bank policy or credit risk or, or what have you. Um, but, you know, having grown up in the mortgage market in the 1980s, you saw the incredible change that happened uh, over a relatively short period of time, we're experiencing that in sustainability. And by the way, there were problems too, right? right? There are things that you find out don't work. You thought worked, they didn't work. And so um, I, I do think that uh, we're getting more consistency. Uh, I'm not a personal believer in having the government tell us which are the right metrics. Uh, I do think that BlackRock urges for more disclosure we always want more disclosure. We want to know more. We want to be able to evaluate companies better. And the more they can tell us, the better we can be at our job. Um, but uh, I do think, uh, so I don't think there's a single standard that is going to emerge. Uh, I do think that the analytics that are available uh, will get more sophisticated, uh, more accurate, uh, more financially material uh, through time. And, you know, BlackRock is, is going to play a role in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's really refreshing to hear that it's this, it's this process that is evolving quickly, but it's also not going to be perfect. And I think people, it, it, throughout time, we've, we've had so many different economic transitions in different sectors of the economy. And uh, sustainability is a big transition that's happening within multiple sectors. But it's not going to be perfect because you, you're going to fail every once in a while. And I think people you know, can't be afraid of that, especially when things are overall moving in the right direction, largely with costs and affordability, reliability, et cetera. And if that's at the mindset, you're not going to be perfect, but you're going to keep moving in the right direction. And, and it seems like that's kind of at the ethos of what you're talking about. Yeah, Benji. And you also have to think about timeframes, right? Yeah. An energy transition is a long duration event. And, and honestly... I actually happen to believe it's going to be longer than most people predict. I think it will take longer. Again, that's a source of frustration for some people. Yeah. Um, but I think to do that in a way that pre preserves kind of economic growth for the maximum number of human beings on this planet uh, is going to take some time. Uh, and the uh, so, so when you think about the tools that you use, you know, they're relatively long-dated instruments. Yeah. Uh, and people point, oh, my God, you know, uh, energy companies or oil companies outperformed this quarter or underperformed that quarter as, as if, like, that's some grand indicator of whether or not, you know, uh, 
sustainability works or any particular measure works. It's just not how the whole system right. works. Right. There's, there's not some perfect uh, incremental scale of, of growth towards where we want to be that, that's the same every quarter, every month, every year. Uh, and I think that's really important for people to understand. There's also no magic wand to fix some of the issues with the transition to happen as fast as some people want. And I, I think that you're exactly dead on on that. So I think one of the more fun parts of the way to think about ESG and the work that BlackRock's doing as well is thinking about the role that the next generation has. And I run an organization with members in all 50 states. We've got a really amazing presence of people who actually think very economically about how we move towards this. How do you see the next generation leading on sustainability, maybe within the company, but also in the marketplace? And how much are young people driving that that transition and how BlackRock's thinking about it? Yeah, look, uh, I, I, it's a great question. And I think young people have a, a really critical role to play in not only creating the energy ecosystem of the future, but also uh, in BlackRock. And, you know, we hire every year, give or take, 450, 500 uh, new college grads to uh, to join the firm, and I I have the uh, the rare honor and privilege of of getting to talk to them usually on their first day uh, at BlackRock, and I tell them it's my favorite day of the year uh, because it is just such a jolt, uh, a caffeine jolt uh, to the whole system. Uh, they bring new ideas, they bring new energy, they bring new perspectives, uh, and uh, that's really how we're going to grow. So we've always been, you know, hugely committed. Uh, to uh, to helping people develop, you know, uh, in their careers and grow great careers at BlackRock, uh, because that's where the push for new energy and new ideas and innovation comes from, for doing things in different ways. And, and I got to tell you, I think the energy industry is the exact same thing. Uh, and if you look, uh, it's one of those industries where there's just going to be massive technological innovation, and whether that's in way, new ways and more efficient ways to extract. Uh, fossil fuels, right. or whether that's in ways to store carbon, uh, or whether that's in ways to you know of, of you know using renewables or in decarbonization technologies. We didn't talk about blue hydrogen. We didn't talk right. about ammonia. We didn't talk about all the the the, the other things that you can do. Um, and so emerging, emerging ideas. Yeah, I, I, I just think the, the the role of of kind of young people and innovation in this is is huge. And by the way, to your listeners out there, you know, if you're interested in working at BlackRock, please come apply. Uh, we uh, we really do want uh, people who are passionate about uh, about our clients and about this uh, uh, the markets to come work here, uh, and uh, especially. Uh, people who, who can really bring new ideas. Well, whether it's Bill Gates or BlackRock or Benji, you know, there's there's a lot of people out there saying there's a technological and innovation gap that's that they're that we have to fill if we're going to to further ourselves on this transition. And what I'm hearing from you is kind of what I've I've heard from some of the smartest you know people in the world, which is that younger generations not just need to vote the right way and think about this the right way. It's also they need to have the ideas in the private sector that help us move closer and closer to where we need to be. And, and that's whether that's in BlackRock or with a, a startup or a, a, an energy company. Uh, there are a lot of really innovative new ideas out there. And they came largely from young people who who came up with them. And, and the whole crop of the next generation should be inspired to do the same because it's what it's going to take. I know we're limited on time. So a last kind of final question for you is vision casting. You've got 
you know, potentially decades or centuries of this transition left. Um, with all that's happening on this, you know, what does the future of sustainability and clean energy look like? Do you see on the horizon fairly broadly, and and maybe what challenges do you see coming from from those changes that we're that we're going to endure over the next decade or two specifically? Look, I, I think um, a couple themes out there. One, uh, focus on energy security. All right. If there's one thing that we learned from from uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, was that you know energy security is absolutely critical uh, to uh, for, for everyone. Uh, two is reliable and affordable energy. You can't have a tra- a transition that you know diminishes reliability or mo- makes energy unaffordable, especially uh, for some of the most vulnerable people. In society, uh, and third is lower emissions. Right, yep. uh, all those three things are going to be there, and so what's going to drive that, uh, and what's driving the the transition? I think you're going to see it driven by technology, uh, and uh, whether that's in renewables, or whether that's in decarbonization, or whether that's just in more efficient extraction and capture of of uh, carbon. Uh, that's going to be critical. You're seeing uh, changing preferences in society, right? Consumer behavior. At the end of the day, uh, consumer behavior and investor preference is going to be the determinant of what's the winning technologies and what's not. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, there is a huge amount of focus on greener products, uh, greener assets. Uh, and I think as we observe impacts uh, of the physical effects of climate change, which tend to be very visible, mm-hmm. it's, 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 the, the, it's the more real right. uh, impacts, uh, you're going to see increased focus on that. And then, and then policy. Right? And, and again, you may like it, you may not like it, but policy impacts this transition a lot. And to the extent that we've seen uh, big support recently in the United States and in Europe, uh, for renewables and for carbon credits, uh, you know that affects asset prices. And again, uh, I'm not advocating for them being good or bad. What I am saying is, given the current policy that's out there, there's uh, it's created a, a, some interesting investment opportunities. Um, out, and um, so all those things I think are are on the horizon are going to be critical parts of this. Uh, of this transition as they play out. And by the way, guess what? Technology is going to change over time. Kind of consumer preferences are going to change over time. And if there's one thing that's, you know, my, my years uh, on, this, on this earth have taught me is that policy will change over time. And good investors are going to have to adapt. Well, Rich, it's been a pleasure, and it's not just because you uh, you brought me a nice tea, but I couldn't really disagree with much you said today. And there's there's so much. I think what you said, you've got to have an optimistic outlook. There's so much optimism in the way that the world is turning on this. And if you ignore the noise of the protests that you've had to endure from both sides, and and some of the very politicized kind of attacks, there's a lot of really good stuff happening here. And I, I you've taken such a pro- pragmatic approach in this conversation. And I think from what I've seen through some of our mutual friends and Paul Bodnar and some, some other folks that I've gotten to work with, there's a lot of really, there are a lot of really great steps happening. And for the next generation to know that 
companies with that big of an impact are thinking about it, but also not just thinking about it into what sounds good and, and feels good, but really does good economically and, and also socially for people uh, of all backgrounds and ethnicities and parts of the world. And I think we've got a real opportunity here. So thank you for sitting down and explaining that. I think a lot of politicians and, and people who haven't had the chance to do so hopefully will. Uh, and I'll keep pushing this to them. And, and I just really appreciate your time. Yeah, Benji, I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.